Welcome to Cardio Radio, a podcast of the Ohio Cardiovascular and Diabetes Health Collaborative, also known as Cardio. This is Dr. Michael Constant from the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, and I serve as the principal investigator for Cardio, a statewide network of Ohio's seven medical schools. Cardio is funded by the Ohio Department of Medicaid and shares best practices to improve cardiovascular health, diabetes outcomes, and to eliminate health disparities in Ohio's Medicaid population. The opinions and recommendations in this podcast are those of the presenters and not those of Cardio and its sponsors, and are not intended to be a substitute for medical advice. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. This is Dr. Deborah Gordish, Associate Professor from The Ohio State University and member of Cardio's Team Best Practices. In this podcast, we will discuss the prevention and management of heart failure for patients with hypertension and diabetes. With me today is Dr. Ian Neeland. Dr. Neeland is an Associate Professor of Medicine at Case Western Reserve University and serves as the Director for Preventive Cardiology and Director of the Center for Integrative and Novel Approaches and Vascular Metabolic Disease Program in the Harrington Heart and Vascular Institute of the University Hospitals Health System. He is also a member of Cardio's Team Best Practices. Dr. Nealon, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Dr. Gordish. It's my sincere pleasure. We know that heart failure is an increasingly prevalent condition. Data from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, or NHANES, showed that between 2017 and 2020, about 6.7 million Americans over the age of 20 had heart failure. The prevalence of heart failure is projected to increase by 46% by the year 2030. I can't help but to wonder how this might be tied to increasing rates of hypertension and diabetes. Dr. Neeland, what is the evidence linking hypertension and diabetes with heart failure? So, you know, we know that the traditional cardiometabolic risk factors, such as hypertension and diabetes, account for a large proportion of heart failure risk. Data from Olmsted County, Minnesota, published in 2009, indicated that hypertension accounted for 20% and diabetes accounted for 12% of the population attributable risk for heart failure. Now, heart failure is strongly related to increasing age, with between 8 to 11% of individuals age 80 and above having heart failure, compared with only 1% to 2% of those age 40 to 59. Since hypertension and diabetes traditionally have appeared in middle age, the risk for heart failure in that population tends to increase steadily after age 50 and can be directly related to these risk factors and their underlying causes, such as obesity. In fact, in a cohort of over 12,000 non-Hispanic black individuals from the Jackson Heart Study and their GUARDS study, over 14 years of follow-up, the multivariable adjusted hazard ratio associated with hypertension compared to normotension was close to twofold higher for incident heart failure. Clearly, hypertension and diabetes are important risk factors for heart disease. I wonder if you can help us understand just how common these risk factors are and how they might vary by different populations, such as by sex and or race or ethnicity. Sure. So, for example, in the coronary artery disease development in young adults, otherwise known as the CARDIA study, among those who are free of hypertension at baseline, the incidence of hypertension defined as systolic blood pressure greater than or equal to 130 millimeters of mercury, diastolic blood pressure greater than or equal to 80 millimeters of mercury, or self-reported antihypertensive medication use, by 55 years of age was 75.7% in black females 
75.5% in black males, 54.5% in white males, and 40% in white females. On the basis of the previously mentioned NHANES study from 2017 to 2020, the age-adjusted prevalence of diagnosed diabetes in adults at least age 20 years varied by sex between 11 and 18% in males and 8 to 15% in females, as well as race and ethnicity. Non-Hispanic white adults with more than high school education had the lowest prevalence, 7.9%, and Hispanic adults with less than high school education had the highest prevalence, 16.2%, and the prevalence of diagnosed diabetes in non-Hispanic black adults was somewhere between 123 and 13.8%. So, hypertension and diabetes are very common, but how do they cause heart failure? So the incidence of heart failure from hypertension and diabetes is directly related to complications from these conditions, namely hypertensive vascular and cardiac changes and microvascular and macrovascular complications in diabetes. One study, known as the Look Ahead study, evaluated 4,095 individuals with type 2 diabetes, and that study found that microvascular disease in adults with type 2 diabetes, free from heart failure, was associated with a 2.5-fold higher risk of incident heart failure than no microvascular disease, including hazard ratios of 2.22 for nephropathy, 1.30 for neuropathy, and 1.33 for retinopathy in that population. We know that about 50% of all heart failure now is heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, or HEFPEF. Patients with HEFPEF have similar mortality rates after diagnosis as those with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, or HEFREF. So both types are equally devastating clinically. What unique aspects of hypertension relate to HEFPEF specifically? So hypertension is by far the most frequent morbidity present in HEFPEF, with its prevalence reaching 80% in some studies such as Get With The Guidelines Initiative and 90% or more in large randomized clinical trials testing the effectiveness of medical treatments in HEFPEF. The type of heart failure really depends on several factors, including hypertension severity, duration, and antihypertensive treatment effectiveness, as well as the balance between left ventricular pressure and left ventricular volume overload, the coexistence of other comorbidities such as obesity, diabetes, and coronary artery disease that pre-exist or modify left ventricular hypertrophy development, and finally, disease modifiers such as age, sex, genetics, and others. A patient with hypertension may develop what's called concentric left ventricular hypertrophy, which is a risk factor for HEFPEF. Also, hypertension may exacerbate or result from other HEFPEF risk factors such as old age, obesity, diabetes, and atrial fibrillation. So there's a lot of interconnectivity with those risk factors in HEFPEF. Wow. So it is really important to identify these risk factors and assess risk for heart failure to prevent development. How might the practicing clinician assess risk for heart failure related to hypertension or diabetes? So there are several heart failure risk scores that consider clinical risk factors among individuals with and without type 2 diabetes. So for example, these include the thrombolysis and myocardial infarction risk score for heart failure and diabetes, otherwise known as the TRS-HFDM, and the WATCH-DM risk scores for patients with diabetes. And then there's a separate score, the PCPHF score, which calculates the risk of heart failure over a 10-year time horizon in the general population, those without necessarily diabetes. These scores are modeled after the pooled cohort equations risk score, which we use for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease prediction, except that they may also include measures for other things like body mass index, QRS duration on the ECG, 
history of other cardiovascular conditions, and laboratory markers of kidney disease. Now, it's important to mention that natriuretic peptides, both the B-type natriuretic peptide, or BNP, and NT-proBNP, have been studied as screening tools for future heart failure. The STOP-HF trial tested the strategy of BNP-based screening with reflex collaborative care, meaning that at least an annual specialized cardiovascular review, which could include Doppler echocardiography, repeat BNP measurement, and other investigations. And that trial showed that among patients at risk for heart failure, this approach reduced the combined rates of left ventricular systolic dysfunction, diastolic dysfunction, and future heart failure events. Similarly, in the Pontiac trial, 300 patients with type 2 diabetes and increased levels of NT-proBNP greater than 125 picograms per milliliter, but who were free from cardiovascular disease, were randomized to either standard treatment at diabetes care units or what they called an intensified strategy in which patients were additionally treated at a cardiac outpatient clinic for the uptitration of renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system inhibitors, or RAS blockers, and beta blockers. Primary endpoint of hospitalization or death due to cardiovascular disease at two years was actually significantly reduced with the use of the intensified strategy. The hazard ratio was 0.35 in that study. Now, there are several studies that investigated the cost-effectiveness of this approach uh, to screening for asymptomatic left ventricular systolic dysfunction using BNP testing. It seems to be cost-effective with less than $50,000 per quality-adjusted life years gained when used in a population with a prevalence of heart failure of at least 1%. Now, these results are so important, they're incorporated in the 2022 Heart Failure Guideline for the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, and Heart Failure Society of America, with a class 2A recommendation that in patients at risk for developing heart failure, such as those with hypertension or type 2 diabetes, as we're discussing today, that BNP or NT-proBNP-based screening, followed by team-based care, including referral to a cardiovascular specialist if needed, can be useful to prevent the development of left ventricular dysfunction or new onset heart failure. Let's focus on hypertension for a moment. Over the past decade, there has been a movement for lower and lower blood pressure targets for the population. Does this hold true for heart failure risk as well? And what is the appropriate blood pressure target to reduce heart failure risk in persons with hypertension? So that's a great question. Hypertension is defined in stages according to the most recent American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association blood pressure guidelines. Stage one hypertension is currently defined as 130 to 139 systolic or 80 to 89 millimeters of mercury diastolic. And stage two hypertension is greater than or equal to 140 systolic or greater than or equal to 90 millimeters of mercury diastolic. Now, numerous studies have shown that antihypertensive therapy reduces atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease events, heart failure, and microvascular complications in diabetes. And in general, every 10 millimeter uh, per mercury reduction in systolic blood pressure is associated with a 28% reduced risk of heart failure. Now, for patients with diabetes and hypertension, blood pressure targets should be individualized through a shared decision-making process that addresses cardiovascular risk, potential adverse effects of antihypertensive medications, such as hypotension, and patient preferences. However, for individuals with diabetes and hypertension at high risk for heart failure, a blood pressure target of less than 130 over 80 millimeters of mercury is appropriate. How might hypertension and diabetes interact when it comes to heart failure? So hypertension is exceedingly common in individuals with type 2 diabetes, and it's a modifiable risk factor for heart failure. 
the 2023 American Diabetes Association and American College of Cardiology American Heart Association guidelines recommend initiating antihypertensive medications for persistently elevated blood pressure of greater than 130 over 80 millimeters of mercury and a target blood pressure of less than 130 over 80 millimeters of mercury if safe and feasible. Targeting a lower blood pressure in a safe manner may also further reduce heart failure risk. For example, in the SPRINT trial, heart failure was reduced by 38% in those randomized to less than 120 versus less than 140 millimeters of mercury. ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers, otherwise known as ARBs, are really the preferred agents to treat hypertension in individuals with type 2 diabetes, especially in the presence of albuminuria. It has been shown that thiazide diuretics and ACE inhibitors are more effective at reducing the risk of heart failure than calcium channel blockers. Doxazosin should be used with caution since it was associated with an increased risk for heart failure compared with chlorthalidone when used to treat hypertension in people enrolled in the trial known as ALHAT. Another common medication class used for hypertension and heart failure is the mineral corticoid receptor antagonists, MRAs, such as spironolactone. There has been quite a bit of new research in this class, especially with the non-steroidal MRA, finerenone. What are your thoughts regarding this class of medications for heart failure in relation to hypertension and diabetes? So occasionally, people with hypertension who are receiving optimal doses of ACE inhibitors or ARBs could exhibit residual overactivation of the corticoid receptors. And in that case, MRAs are useful as adjunctive therapy. Now, steroidal MRAs, such as aplerinone and spironolactone, which have been around for a while, reduce albuminuria, but frequently cause hyperkalemia, especially when used in conjunction with ACE inhibitors or ARBs. They are indicated for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction based on prior trials such as RAILS and Ephesus. But a newer alternative, MRA, which is called finerenone, which is a non-steroidal MRA, has been approved for people with diabetic kidney disease. Now, compared with steroidal MRAs, finerenone is believed to have a higher potency and exert a less risk of hyperkalemia. The trials known as Fidelio-DKD and Figuro-DKD are complementary clinical trials that examine the kidney and cardiovascular effects of finerenone among people with type 2 diabetes and chronic kidney disease. In those trials, finerenone significantly reduced the risk of heart failure in the Figaro-DKD trial with a non-significant relationship found in Fidelio-DKD. And in a pre-specified pooled analysis of these two trials, the reduction in a composite cardiovascular outcome was actually mainly driven by reductions in hospitalizations for heart failure with a hazard ratio of 0.78. The American Diabetes Association recommends the addition of an MRA to treat hypertension in patients with type 2 diabetes if they are not meeting blood pressure goals, despite being on three classes of antihypertensive medications, including a thiazide diuretic. Finerenone can be considered in people living with type 2 diabetes and albumin excretion rate that is 30 milligrams per day or more, measured or estimated, despite being on ACE inhibitors or ARBs and SGLT2 inhibitors. Finerenone should not be started, though, in people with serum potassium of 4.8 or more or an EGFR of 25 or less. Now let's turn to diabetes. There are many medications on the market for diabetes, but I know several of them may actually increase risk for or exacerbate heart failure. Can you tell us about this? So metformin and sulfonylureas are commonly prescribed for glycemic control in diabetes. And the FDA previously listed heart failure as a contraindication to the use of metformin over concerns for lactic acidosis. This listing was later removed after conflicting evidence emerged. Now, few randomized clinical trials have evaluated the effects of metformin 
and or sulfonylureas on heart failure risk. And in general, few studies have been conducted assessing heart failure as a primary outcome or a composite of a primary outcome outside of SGLT2 inhibitors. But for the study known as the Carolina trial, for example, participants with diabetes were randomized to treatment with either the sulfonylurea glimepiride or the dipeptidyl peptidase 4 inhibitors, known as DPP4 inhibitors. And there were similar rates of hospitalization for heart failure in both groups. Now, insulin is commonly added to the regimen of people with type 2 diabetes when oral antidiabetic agents cannot attain sufficient glycemic control or cannot be taken. Although insulin has fluid retention and weight gain effects, data from the large-scale outcome reduction with initial glargine intervention or origin trial, which included over 12,000 people with diabetes or prediabetes, did not suggest an increased risk of heart failure in people receiving insulin glargine compared with standard of care after six years of follow-up. Similarly, the trial comparing cardiovascular safety of insulin degladec versus insulin glargine, which is known as the DEVOTE trial, showed no difference in the incidence of heart failure between people with type 2 diabetes randomized to the ultra-long-acting insulin degladec versus insulin glargine. Now, moving on to the thiazinolone diadones, TZDs, this is a class of antihyperglycemic medications that are actually contraindicated for use among people with prevalent heart failure, in part due to the side effect of fluid retention. Findings from several studies of pyoglitazone, myoglitazar, and rosiglitazone suggested that the TZDs increased the risk of heart failure. These concerning heart failure trends with TZDs were actually part of the mounting evidence that led the FDA to issue guidance to industry recommending cardiovascular outcomes trials to show cardiovascular safety of new glucose-lowering medications. What about the newer classes of medications for diabetes, such as the DPP-4 inhibitors, and glucagon-like peptide 1 agonist. So DPP-4 inhibitors are incretin-based therapies and were among the first antihyperglycemic medications evaluated in cardiovascular outcome trials after the FDA issued its guidance to industry, as I mentioned above. In the trial known as SAVER-TIMI-53, saxagliptin did not influence the risk of major adverse cardiovascular events, but did increase the risk of hospitalization due to heart failure with a hazard ratio of 1.27. Similarly, a post-hoc analysis of the trial known as EXAMINE showed that alogliptin was associated with a 76% increased risk of heart failure hospitalization in people with type 2 diabetes and no previous history of heart failure. However, the tendency of DPP-4 inhibitors to increase the risk of hospitalization due to heart failure might not be a class effect. Citagliptin was not found to increase the risk of hospitalization for heart failure in the trial known as TCOS, and linagliptin did not significantly affect the risk of hospitalization for heart failure in two other cardiovascular outcome trials. Nevertheless, given that other antidiabetic agents have better established safety, efficacy or both, for heart failure outcomes, DPP-4 inhibitors should probably avoid it in people with type 2 diabetes or at elevated risk for developing heart failure. Now, studies evaluating the effect of glucagon-like peptide 1 receptor agonists on the risk of heart failure have actually yielded mixed findings. The risk of major adverse cardiovascular events was significantly reduced by liraglutide and semaglutide in their respective cardiovascular outcome trials in patients with type 2 diabetes, but the risk of hospitalization for heart failure was unaffected. In contrast, albiloglutide and fpeglutide significantly reduced the risk of hospitalization for heart failure by 29% and 39% respectively. When taking it all together in a meta-analysis of eight cardiovascular outcomes trials that evaluated different GLP-1 receptor agonists, participants who were randomized to GLP-1 receptor agonists actually had a significant 11% reduction in the risk of hospitalization for heart failure. These findings highlight the potential role of GLP-1 receptor agonists in preventing heart failure among individuals with type 2 diabetes. However, their efficacy among patients with known heart failure is actually less well-established. For example, 
In the effective liraglutide and left ventricular function in stable chronic heart failure patients, or LIVE trial, no significant differences in heart failure-related outcomes were reported with liraglutide use among patients with advanced heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, or HEFREF. However, serious adverse cardiovascular events, such as sustained ventricular tachycardia, atrial fibrillation requiring intervention, and aggravation of ischemic heart disease, were actually reported more frequently with the liraglutide group compared with the placebo group. And these safety concerns were further substantiated in the functional impact of GLP-1 for heart failure treatment trial, or FIGHT, in which liraglutide was associated with a numerically greater incidence of a composite outcome of death or heart failure hospitalization overall, particularly among participants with type 2 diabetes. So the data are really mixed. However, newer data for patients with HEF-PEF and obesity suggests that GLP-1 receptor agonists actually may improve heart failure symptoms. Results from the STEP-HEF-PEF trial, for example, have showed that in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and obesity, treatment with semaglutide, 2.4 milligrams, led to larger reductions in symptoms and physical limitations, greater improvements in exercise function, and greater weight loss than placebo. So results from other ongoing trials, including testing semaglutide in those with HEF-PEF and type 2 diabetes, are eagerly awaited to further clarify the efficacy of semaglutide among patients with HEF-PEF. What role do the SGLT2 inhibitors have in heart failure treatment or prevention in patients with or without diabetes and hypertension? So SGLT2 inhibitors have shown clinical efficacy in reducing the risk of adverse clinical outcomes among patients with prevalent heart failure across the spectrum of ejection fraction. The dipagliflozin trial, otherwise known as DAPA-HF, and the empagliflozin trials, known as EMPER-reduced, provided evidence to secure the role of SGLT2 inhibitors as foundational drugs in improving heart failure-related outcomes in patients with pre-existing HEF-REF. Furthermore, in the HEF-PEF population, EMPER-PRESERVE trial and the DELIVER trial with dipagliflozin provided evidence that the benefits of SGLT2 inhibitors can extend to patients with HEF-PEF. A newer SGLT2 inhibitor, sotagliflozin, which is a combined SGLT2 and SGLT1 inhibitor, also reduced the composite of total hospitalization from heart failure or cardiovascular death in patients with type 2 diabetes and worsening heart failure within three days of hospital discharge after heart failure hospitalization, and that benefit was consistent above, across both ejection fraction subtypes. The positive effects of SGLT2 inhibitors on the risk of heart failure are likely mediated via factors other than glycemic control. Keep in mind that altered cardiac bioenergetics, enhanced erythropoiesis, and alterations in regenerative cell exhaustion have been postulated as potential mechanisms underlying the benefits of SGLT2 inhibitors. These drugs have been shown to have a favorable effect on cardiac structure and function and reverse cardiac remodeling. That was simply amazing. There is so much out there and in development helping us to understand heart failure better and improve tools to prevent and treat it in patients with hypertension and diabetes. Today we learned about two studies, STOP HF and Pontiac, that investigated use of natriuretic peptide screening to predict heart failure risk. We also described the most appropriate treatment target for hypertension, blood pressure less than 130 over 80, to reduce the risk for heart failure. And we also identified two novel medications with evidence for outcome benefits for patients with diabetes and heart failure, the SGLT2 inhibitors in both HEF-PEF and HEF-REF, and the GLP-1 receptor agonist semaglutide, in HEF-PEF. From a primary care perspective, a big takeaway for me from this discussion is learning of the risk score tools 
and thinking of ways to utilize them during yearly physicals for patients with diabetes and hypertension. And it is important to prioritize medications that will help with both heart failure and hypertension or diabetes and those patients at risk for heart failure. Advances in heart failure evaluation and treatment seem to be improving yearly. Yes, it it really is certainly a very exciting time to be working in this field. Thank you, Dr. Nealand, for speaking with us today. Thank you, Dr. Gordas, for having me. And a special thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in to Cardio Radio. This concludes today's podcast. Be sure to visit cardio.org to learn more about the Ohio Cardiovascular and Diabetes Health Collaborative.